Now, Christmas is a, it's a season of joy and a season of reflection. It's a season where we look forward to what God is about to do and a season where we look back at what God has done. Usually when we think about Christmas, we think about the baby in a manger. And as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke over the last several weeks, we've been focusing in on that birth scene of Jesus in Bethlehem and the singing of the angels. And appropriately so, we, we think about God in human flesh, the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, being born of a virgin. But what I want us to think about today are the theological implications of Christmas. I want us to think about why Christmas. Uh, there's the birth of the baby in the manger, and that does bring us good feelings. It brings us warm feelings, and, and, and we rejoice in that. But the passage that we're looking at today is going to step back and think about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the invasion of earth from heaven, theologically. And twice in the verses that, we, that we're going to study this morning, we see John's thoughts about why Jesus came. And it takes us a little bit deeper into Christmas. It causes us to think about Christmas from a slightly different perspective. Jesus did this even while he was an adult. Uh, numerous times he said something like, I have come, which means I've invaded planet Earth. The word has become flesh. And then he tells us a reason why. For example, in Mark chapter 10. And verse 45, this is what Jesus said. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice there are two, two ideas in that, in that passage. First, he didn't come to be served. I don't know about you, but I like to be served. I, I, I prefer to be served. Uh, but that's the part of me that still needs to grow in Christ-likeness because when Jesus came, he says, I didn't come for people to serve me. I came to serve people and to give my life a ransom for many. He came to die, to purchase for God, to redeem sinners, to establish a kingdom. He didn't come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. And then in Luke chapter 5, Listen to what Jesus said. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when he says, I've not come to call the righteous, he's saying that tongue in cheek. Because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all sinners by birth and sinners by choice. So when he says, I've not come to call the righteous, he means there's nothing that I can do for the self-righteous. There's nothing that I can do for those who don't or who aren't willing to acknowledge they need a Savior. But he says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Notice the words, I have come. Jesus is telling us in his own words. He's articulating for himself to us the purpose of his coming. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, 
For the Son of Man has, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. That's why he left the glories of heaven to be born among mankind, to be born in a stable. That's why the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh because the Word was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. In John chapter 12, I have come. Notice all of these references, they say something about why he's come. I have come as light into the world. I've come as a light into the world. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Outside of Christ, every person is in spiritual and moral darkness. Outside of Christ, every person is spiritually blind. But Jesus came into the world to be a light, to illuminate the darkness, to help us to see our need of a Savior. Look in John chapter 10. Follow along as I read John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Notice the contrast as to why the thief came. The thief is a, is a reference to Satan. Notice the definite article, the. Notice it's singular, the thief. The thief comes only. This is his purpose, to kill, steal, and destroy. Look at the devastation and the destruction that exists all around us. I'm not talking about natural disasters as horrific as those are, but about moral catastrophes. Look at the families that are crumbling. The married couples that are at war. The people whose children have gone one way while well, they've gone another way. Look at, how, look at how so many lives are broken and hurting. Sometimes it's not by their choices, but by the choices of others, and they're inflicted by the other's choice. Satan has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to think very hard to see the reality and the truth of that. But Jesus has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Notice the words, I come that. That's why Jesus came. Now, when we turn to John, 1 John chapter 3, we're listening to the words of the last living apostle. We're listening to the words of a man that has been thinking about the life and ministry of Jesus for over 50 years. We're, thinking about, we're, we're, we're listening to a man who is a seasoned saint. We're listening to the inside of one who is right on the precipice of entering into eternity. We're listening to the words of the beloved disciple, the one that leaned back on Jesus' breast, on Jesus' chest at, at the Last Supper, and to ask him, who's the one that will betray you? He's reflecting here on why Jesus came. He's thinking about it theologically. He's thinking about it from a pastoral perspective. And I want you to notice several thoughts in these verses as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. I want you to notice a universal truth in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is 
lawlessness. Notice how inclusive his statement is. In fact, it's all-inclusive. Everyone. There is absolutely no exception. Who practices sin practices lawlessness. Now, we often minimize our sin, trivialize our sin. Uh, We try to find words that redefine sin so that it doesn't seem so abrasive. It doesn't seem so harsh. And yet, no matter what we call our sin, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is an affront to the Word of God. Lawlessness is an affront to the person of God. Because sin is lawlessness. It's a divine definition of sin. John's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John is telling us what God thinks about sin. Sin is opposition to God's Word. It's opposition to God's law. And everyone who practices sin is a lawbreaker. It's a universal truth. I want you to notice, secondly, a scriptural affirmation. And what this, what this affirmation is, it is a, an, an acknowledgement of one of the purposes of Christmas. It's one of the reasons Jesus Christ became a human being, why he became the God-man, why he became incarnate, why the Word became flesh. He says, you know. Now, this is easy for us to forget. And maybe we're young in the Lord and you've never even read the book of 1 John before. But this is something he wants us to know. This is something he wants us to underline. This is something he wants us to be certain about. So he says, you know that he appeared, that he is obviously Jesus. He's referring to the incarnation. He's referring to the word become flesh. He's referring to the baby that was born in a manger. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He's telling us two things about Jesus. At the end of the verse, he's telling us that Jesus is sinless. That Jesus is like us in his incarnation, in his humanity, in every way except no sin. We are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's been true of every human being since Adam and Eve. Yet when Jesus was conceived, he was conceived without sin. His mother was a virgin. We talked about the virginal conception. Why did Jesus need to be conceived of a virgin? Because Jesus needed to be sinless, and he was. And in him there is no sin. We need to know that about him because that's what makes him a sufficient Savior for us. Only a sinless one could die for sinners. Only one who had no sin in which he needed to be punished could die for those who deserved to be punished. So Jesus was sinless. But the first part of the verse says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So that baby in a manger, it's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful scene. It gives us, it gives us great warmth and affection for Jesus. 
that although he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He came primarily to take away sin. In fact, that's what his name means. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves or God saves. His mission and his name were wrapped up together. So he appeared, he was born into this world to take away sins. What he means by that is to bear our sin in his body on the tree. That is, John is saying Jesus died in our place. Jesus suffered for us. This is the way the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's the great exchange. Jesus became sin for us so that we could become righteous in him. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So he bore the punishment for our sin on the cross. Peter put it this way. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And Jesus himself brought our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. So when darkness covered the earth at about 12 o'clock on Good Friday until 3 o'clock, and when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you know God through Christ, he was bearing the punishment for your sin in that very moment. He was experiencing hell in that moment in our place. God's righteous indignation against our sin was being poured out on him. He appeared so that he could take away our sin. So the baby brings us warm feelings, but the baby was born to die, be buried, and be raised again from the dead. Uh, I want you to notice a third thought. It's a logical deduction. It's the outworking of what he says at the end of this verse. Uh, at the end of verse 24 in 1 Peter, and he says, and live for righteousness. He came to take away our sins. That's the way that John puts it. And so what John wants to do here is he wants us to understand that if we know Jesus, it is evident in how we live. If we know Jesus, we'll live for Jesus. And if we live for Jesus, it's going to be evident that we're living for Jesus. So it's a logical deduction. He's thinking theologically. He's moving us from the heart to the head. He wants us to not only be passionate Christians, he wants us to be knowledgeable Christians. He wants us not only to live right, but to think right. And in fact, our thinking determines how we live. And so there's a logical deduction. And the logical deduction is the the lives that we live day by day are the clearest indicator of whether we know Jesus or not. So he says, no one 
who remains in him sins continually. So he, he states it positively. Then he's going to say the same thing, stating it negatively. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Now, we, we need to think about this carefully because all of us in this room are sinners. Some of us are saved sinners. Others of us are unsaved sinners. All of us are sinners. Some of us are forgiven sinners. Some of us are unforgiven sinners. So John says, no one who remains, no one who abides in him sins continually, sins habitually, sins flagrantly. Uh, but you know what? We all still sin. Uh, we are all still committing acts of sin. Some of us do it without any concern about it. And others of us mourn and grieve over it. I, I know you'll find this stunning and almost impossible to believe, but I still sin. It, it, it shocks me sometimes, too. It doesn't shock my wife, however, because she has to live with me, and she's lived with me now for almost 40 years. Yesterday, I spoke unkindly to her. If you know her, you wonder, how could anybody speak unkindly to her? Well, I, I spoke unkindly to her yesterday. I knew immediately it hurt her, and almost immediately it hurt me that I hurt her, and then it hurt me that I had hurt God. I say that to say that we all still commit acts of sin. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because when I sin, I don't lose my salvation. My salvation is secure. I am indwelt by the Spirit of God. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In heaven, there is a record of perfect righteousness. It's not my record. It's Christ's record that's been attributed to me because of my faith in him. But when I sin, it dis when I sin against my wife, it disrupts the closeness of our relationship. I don't need to get married again. We're still married. Uh, I don't, she still loves me and I still love her. But it's appropriate for me to make sure that our relationship is rightly restored. And so I say to her, Jaylena, I'm, I'm sorry, sweetheart, I should have never have said that. And, and the way that I said it was even wrong. And she's always gracious and, 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 uh, and genuinely forgives me. Well, the same is true with God. When we sin, we should confess our sin to God. And in fact, I can say that almost every single day, if not every single day, we ought to be confessing sin because none of us are perfect yet. In fact, if we say that we're perfect, Jesus, through the, through the apostle John, says we're a liar. It says in John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we lie and don't speak the truth. See, when, when we're saved, we've talked about this before, we're justified by faith. That means 
We, God forgives us. He adopts us into his family. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. Uh, but not until the end of our life, not till the day that we breathe our last breath, are we glorified. That is, sin still dwells inside of us. And it's a daily battle. Now we have the power of the Holy Spirit to fight against it. We have the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we grieve the Spirit of God. But when we die, we are glorified and sin no longer has any part of us. But in between that day and the day that we're saved is this lengthy period of time where God graciously sanctifies us. That is, we become more and more, little by little, bit by bit, Sometimes two steps forward and one step back conformed into the image of Jesus. So when he says no one who remains in sin sins, no one who remains in him sins continually, he's talking about practicing sin flagrantly, unconcerned about it. You know, some of us know Jesus. In fact, most of us here today know Jesus. When was the last time you had a good time of confession of your sin to Jesus? You know, the, the longer we go without regularly confessing our sin, it, it becomes like a wound, and it can become infected. So we need to have regular times of confession, but it's best to confess our sin when we, when we commit our sin because the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. And so hopefully we haven't put it off a long time to where our heart's a little bit hard and we don't feel God's conviction like we once did. But the person who sins continually, it says, has, has, has never seen him or knows him. And by that, that means sin doesn't bother them. They could, they could care less if they speak harshly to their spouse, condescendingly to their mate, harshly to their kids. They could care less about the spiritual condition of their soul. That person is in serious trouble. They would say, but I've been baptized. I'm jo I've joined this church. I'm here virtually every Sunday. Let me tell you, it's your lifestyle that is the true picture of your confession. It's the way that you live day in and day out that reflects whether we truly love and know Jesus or not. So he gives us a serious warning because he knows that our, that our hearts will try to deceive us, that this isn't true. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That is, before, before God created the heavens and the earth, Satan rebelled against God and led a revolt against heaven. And Satan and his follow, fallen angels called demons began to sin, and they've sinned from the very beginning. From the time of their beginning, sinning, they've continued to sin. He's been sinning from the beginning. 
And those who practice this sin are of the devil. That is, those who can, can engage in sin and it not bother them. And, and it's habitual, it's regular. And, and in fact, they enjoy what they're doing. They know, it, they, they know that it's displeasing to God, but they enjoy it. They, uh, they relish in it. They, they, they make plans to do it. They, they practice it. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Now, that's, that's not my words. That's, that's John's words writing under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. Now, what he goes on to do is to give us another reason for Christmas. Notice he says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. The Son of God became a human being. The Son of God was born in a manger in Bethlehem. The Son of God became incarnate. The Word became flesh for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. One way he destroys the works of the devil is as his people grow ever more conscious of their hatred of sin. As we hate our sin, we seek to put our sin to death, we fight against our sin by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, never reaching sinless perfection, but always a little bit at a time, becoming more and more Christ-like. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more like Jesus we should become. The works of the devil are being exposed and the works of the devil are being destroyed. And so that's why Jesus came. It's one of the reasons why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. He destroys those works through the choices of his people as he empowers them to put sin to death. But I want you to notice in the last couple of verses that there are only two categories of people. I mentioned that just a moment ago, but John brings it home right here. He says, no one who has been born of God practices sin. Now, I've already said we're all still sinners. If you don't believe it, if you're married, ask your spouse. If you have children, ask your children. If you're, if you're single, just ask people that know you well. They know you're a sinner. You might as well admit it. But what he's saying here is no one born of God practices sin. When I think about the word practice, I think of it in these terms. When our, when our daughter Lydia was growing up, we, we wanted her to play the piano. She, she liked playing the piano. Her, her grandparents had, ga- had given us a piano for her. And so she took piano for many years. And she's an excellent pianist, and she had to practice piano. With, with my boys, we gave them piano lessons at the end of the year. It had been like a royal battle every day to get them to practice. We said to the piano teacher, the same piano teacher, this Lydia's piano teacher, we think maybe we're going to find something different for the boys. And she said, I think that would be a good idea, <laughs> but not with Lydia. Lydia loved the piano. Lydia practiced the piano. Lydia practiced the piano when she didn't have to practice the piano. That's what it means to practice. You make plans to do something you enjoy doing. You enjoy doing it so much, you do it regularly. You do it habitually. You do it faithfully. No one who has been born of God practices sin. They don't do it habitually, faithfully, regularly. They, they don't gain enjoyment. In fact, it brings, them, it brings them displeasure when they commit acts of sin against God. Because God's seed, God's spirit remains in them. 
And he cannot sin continually because he has been born of God. Born again by the Spirit of God means that the Spirit of God works in us. He convicts us. We fall into a rut. We fall into a spiritual rut. We fall into a, into a rut of a particular sin. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's harshness. Maybe it's just apathy or spiritual indifference. The Spirit of God in us convicts us of that. He loves us too much to allow us to be in that rut. And remember, a rut is nothing more than a grave with the ends kicked out. Because we've been born of God. We belong to God. We're children of God. He loves us. When I discipline my kids when they were little, after I would discipline, I would, I would sit on the bed in my better moments, and then I would take them in my lap. I'd wrap my arms around them, and I would kiss them on the cheek. And I would say, I know you don't believe this, but I do this because I love you. And one day, you're going to grow up, and you're going to give your life to Jesus, and I want you to realize that God's not going to let you get away with sin. That just like daddy and mommy have to discipline you, and we do it out of love, I want you to know that this is a picture that when you give your life to Jesus, he's going to do this one day when you sin against him. So if I didn't discipline you, I would give you a bad picture of Jesus. I would give you a distorted picture of your heavenly father. You would think that he's lazy and indifferent and uncaring about what you do, but I love you and I care about what you do. He, love, he will love you more and he loves you more and he cares more about what you do than I do. He will discipline you because when you know Jesus, you've been born of God. But then he goes on to say, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother and sister. Two things there. You ask a person, think about it. Do you know God? Well, you know, I've been baptized. I've joined a church. I attend, uh, I attend on, a, on a regular basis. But, but he says that anyone who loves God practices righteousness, and those who don't love God don't practice righteousness. So our lifestyle is an evidence of our conversion. How we live day in and day out is a reflection of who we really are. And then he throws this kind of a curveball, and a curveball only in this way. He hadn't said anything about it in the verses that we've been reading. But he adds this, nor the one who does not love his brother and sister. By that, nor the one who does not love the church. Either you love the church or you don't love the church. Most of the time when we don't love the church, we blame the church. Well, I don't love the church because of the church. I don't love the church because of the people. I, I, I don't love the church because of the pastor. That one makes perfect sense. But I, I don't love the church. Their problem is always the church. It's the problem of the church or the people, the person nor the one who does not love his brother and sister. Sometimes we expect more out of the church than we're willing to give the church. Sometimes we expect from the church what we're not willing to invest in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that all of those people are not Christian people, but I tell you what, it ought to make you pause and think for just a moment. 
Do I love the church like Jesus loves the church? Am I as committed to the church as Jesus is committed to the church? Maybe there ought to be a big question mark in our minds right now. Why not? Why don't I love the church like Jesus loves the church? Why am I not as committed to the church as Jesus is committed to the church? So he says, nor the one who does not love his brother and sister, the church. Well, let me give you a couple of final thoughts, and, and this is to take what we've just studied and get us ready for to take the, take the Lord's Supper. And, and let me say this, if you're a guest with us today, and, and you may be wondering, uh, Pastor, what's the, what's the practice of the church about guests participating in the Lord's Supper? If you know Jesus and love Jesus, uh, we, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us today. Uh, that is, that's enough said. I want to say first, as we look at this passage today, it tells us that we are all sinners. Some of us are forgiven sinners, saved by Jesus, and others of us are not forgiven because we've never turned our lives over to Jesus. We're all sinners. Some of us are forgiven sinners. Some of us are unforgiven sinners. The difference between us is this. Those who are forgiven have given their lives to Jesus Christ. They've asked Jesus to save them because they know that they are in need of a Savior. They know there's something wrong. There's something out of kilter. There's something not right. There's something messed up with me. It's not that the world has a, a problem. I've got a problem. It's not my mom and dad. And as you know from me being your pastor all these years, I didn't come from a Christian family. There had to come a point when I had to quit blaming my father and my mother for the decisions and the choices that I was making as a teenager. But the, what's clear and to me definitive is we are all sinners. Some of us are forgiven sinners and some of us are not. The second thing is this, God loves sinners. Christmas reminds us that God loves sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world could be saved through him. God loves sinners. Now, those of us who know God through Christ need to take this to heart. Because in the next few days, many of us are going to be gathered with family members and friends, and some of them don't know Jesus. Some of them don't love Jesus. Don't expect them to live and to act like they do know Jesus or love Jesus if they don't know Jesus. But go into those family gatherings as a forgiven sinner, loving sinners that Jesus loves, and look for opportunities to show them practical love. Look for ways to minister to them. In fact, pray about it before the gathering. And then, and then plant gospel seeds. You know, you plant gospel seeds just by kindness. You don't have to give a full gospel presentation. It may not be appropriate. It may not be the time. You maybe are going to be with a part of your family that you haven't been praying for. So the ground may be very hard. 
but you've got a few days to pray for them. And then what you ought to do is to look just to plant a gospel seed here and, here and there. You never know how, how the Spirit of God will take a gospel seed and turn it into a salvific plant. You know, in, in our two lobbies, we've got our missions team has, has put together bags to take to, to uh, convenience stores that you may regularly, regularly uh, attend and, uh, or go to. And, and Jaylen's got one right around the corner from our house. She goes there almost every day for a Coke, uh, a Coke Zero. She took two because there's two particular ladies she's been praying for. There's two particular ladies she's been planting gospel seeds. There's two ladies that she's uh, that she's invited to, to Christmas Eve services. You're going to take them bags from our church and just reiterate uh, the Christmas Eve service. But you've got family members. We don't have bags for you to take to them. Uh, but you've got family members who really need you to be a light and really need you to exemplify the love of Jesus. And it might mean holding your tongue and pressing down a little righteous indignation in order just to be a gospel witness at Christmas. That's what the Lord's Supper is to remind us to do, to be a gospel witness, to love Jesus as Jesus has loved us. I'm going to ask if you'll join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have to partake of the Lord's Supper. We thank you, Father, that it is a reminder to us that you love sinners. You love saved sinners, and you love unsaved sinners. But you love sinner, saved sinners in a particular way, in a peculiar way, in a specific way, in an intentional way, in a salvific way. And, Father, the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. So, Father, as we sing... And as our deacons distribu distribute the elements, allow the truth to resonate in our minds. Jesus loves me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.